You're listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, D.C., visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. If you got a copy of your scriptures, we're in the book of James, and we're going to do something today. We're going to read a bit of James, and we're going to read a bit of Romans too. So if you want to open James, that'll help you, James chapter 2, but I'm going to read a bit of James, a bit of Romans. I'm going to warn you today, folks, today's going to be a little different. It might feel a little bit like a lecture class, so put your thinking caps on, okay? But let me tell you why I'm excited about that, because I feel like today has the opportunity to put some steel into the foundation of our faith. And I think as a result of that, this would be a message you're going to refer to for some friends for years to come. You're going to say, hey, go listen to this. I think it might settle some unsettled parts of us. When I talk to a lot of people, I feel that they're unsettled by a couple different things. Often people, when they're early in their journey of faith, say, man, I'm unsettled by, can I trust the Bible? Is it a reliable guidebook? And then how do I know I'm okay with God? How do I know I've done enough? How do I know he's happy with me? And these passages are going to touch down on two of those areas that produce a lot of anxiety. Can I trust this word? And how do I know God and I are okay? And before I read the passages, one last thing is this. I always think it's important to honor your influences. And for me, as I've been teaching through James, I've mentioned Douglas Moo's commentary, enormously helpful. Today, John Piper's thoughts on this text really helped my own. But even as I was going back through old notes from when I taught this, I was struck by how much my thinking has been influenced by Pastor Tim Keller, not just in content, but even the structure of these last few sermons. I thought I was brilliant, and then I remembered, oh, no, it's him. So I just want to let you know who's influencing your pastor, and I also want to honor Pastor Tim Keller. He pastored New York for years. Incredible, and his thoughts have really shaped my own, particularly these last few weeks. So with all that said, James chapter 2, let me start reading in verse 14. And it says this, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, now I have works. Well, show me your faith apart from your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person? <laughs> that, <laughs> that part gets me every time. I told y'all, James is coming direct. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. Faith was completed by his works. And scripture was fulfilled that said Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, it was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now let me read a little bit of Romans written by Paul, starting in chapter 3, verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith 
apart from works of the law? Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he'd have something to boast about, but not before God. But what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Well, I don't know if you caught it, but there's some tension in those two passages of Scripture I just read. And you can really feel those tension, that tension in two particular verses. Romans chapter 3, verse 28, Paul says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. But then James 2 says, You see, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So which is it? Are we justified by faith or are we justified by works? We sang a very Pauline song. It is finished. It is done, right? That Christ has done it. Is that true? Did Esther lie to us? Did she make us sing lies? How do you reconcile these texts? Paul said we're justified by faith. James says we're justified by works. What does that mean? I remember when I heard Tim Keller preach this. He said this obviously contradicts each other. Therefore, the Bible is not a reliable guidebook for life. Therefore, it's not reliable on what it teaches about God. So today marks the end, not just of this church, but Christianity as we know it. Is that true? Well, there's some tension here we got to resolve. And let me say this. Let me ease a little bit of tension before we freak out with two historical paths. Number one is that the early church took the letter of James and the letters of Paul and bound them together in the scriptures. So unless they're complete morons, they understood a way to reconcile these two men's writings. The second point I would say is this. James and Paul knew each other and didn't just know each other personally. They were familiar with each other's teachings. And so if you read the book of Acts, which is the history of the early church, in chapter 15, there's a council in Jerusalem led by Peter, James, and Paul. And the council was discussing this very thing. What does it take to be okay with God? And particularly, what does that mean about faith and about works? And they discussed it, and James and Paul came away with a consensus. So much so that when J Paul wrote to the Galatians, he said that James extended to me the right hand of fellowship. We shook hands on it. James and Paul were cool. So if they reconciled this, we got to figure out how. How do we understand it? And if some of you are like, well, I don't know if I need to do that intellectual exercise. Yes, you do, because we all feel this intrinsically. People say, hey, if you say you're religious or God has touched down in your life, you should live differently. We all think that. Spiritual people, Christian people, Jesus followers should live differently. But do you live differently in order to get God's approval? Or I thought we were forgiven without having to do any work. So if we're forgiven by grace, why does the Bible tell us to do stuff? How do you reconcile faith and work? That's where we're going. You see it? Now, as we talk about that, here's some things we got to get clear on the front end. Why is there tension in these two passages? I would say two reasons. One's about words and one's about content. 
Why is there some conflict here? Here's the issue with words. Sometimes the same word can mean different things. Here's an easy example. The word rock. The word rock can mean a stone. It can mean a type of music. It can be a compliment, as in you rock. It can be a verb, as in what one does in a rocking chair. It can be the name of a man. I heard about a pastor named Rock Bottomley. So I teach young, my young guys all the time, the most important question in theology to ask someone is this, when you say that word, what do you mean? Because words can carry different meanings, and the same word can carry different meanings. And context in a sentence usually determines what you mean. Do you mean a stone, or do you mean some music? What do you mean? Context helps us. It's the same thing that happens in Greek. There's a Greek word, zealos, which can mean zeal in a good way, or jealousy in a bad way. And context helps you understand. Now, I say that because I'm going to submit to you, justify is the same thing. That justify can mean two different things. In one sense, to justify something is to make it right, to constitutionally make it right. Like if I have a debt and I pay it, I have justified that debt. I've reconciled that balance. To justify can mean to make something right. But justify can also mean to prove that something's right, to show that it is right. That if you made an assertion and I said, justify that statement, I'm not saying make it true. I'm saying if you believe it's true, vindicate it. Prove to me what it really is. So why mention that? I would submit to you, Paul is using justify in that first sense. That when Paul says that we are justified by faith, what he's saying is that we believe that God justifies, which means make right. God makes us right once and for all in a moment. Justification is a declarative act whereby God says, you and me are okay, not on the basis of anything you've done, but on the finished work of Jesus. It is finished. It is done because Christ is risen. He did all the work and God declares you right, makes you righteous by your faith alone in the finished work of Jesus. That's how Paul will use it in Romans. James will use justification in the second sense of God proving or vindicating or showing what was already there. That you had faith, but your work shows us the faith that's really there. Or Philip Melanchthon would say it this way. He was the uh, uh, protege of Martin Luther. He says, faith, we are saved by faith alone. But that faith never stays alone. That faith begins to express itself and work. So there's an issue of words. The word justify can be used in different ways, and the context shows you how it's used. The other issue is an issue of content, that not only can one word mean different things, different words can speak about the same thing. That's what makes it so confusing. Great example. Let's say you had a British friend, and y'all were trying to figure out what you wanted to do tomorrow afternoon. If he said, let's go play football, it would be silly if you're like, no, I don't want to. I want to play soccer. And if y'all began to fight about this for hours, it'd be the dumbest thing because you're talking about the same sport. But that same sport, kicking around a ball into a net, different people use different words to express the same idea. Do you see that? And I'd submit to you what we're going to see in James and Paul is they're going to use different words to talk about the same issue. 
Does that make sense? It's all precursors. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the content of Paul's gospel. How does Paul explain what God is doing with you and me? And then we're going to look at how James explains what God is doing with you and me. And then we'll wrap up to say, how are we right with God? How do we know that we got the real stuff and that God is cool with us? But as we get into the content of Paul's gospel, one important question to ask is this. If, if they really are saying the same thing, why is their language so different? Why does James almost verbatim seem to go the opposite direction of Paul? And I would submit this, because many commentators believe this, that what James is doing is not correcting Paul, but correcting a distorted Pauline theology. That there were people out there that were taking Paul's words and twisting them to mean something Paul doesn't mean. And commentators believe that because not only James had to fight a distorted Pauline theology, Paul had to do it. That all through his ministry, Paul was having to combat people who were twisting his words to say something he doesn't mean. Because Paul would tell people, you're justified, made right with God by the finished work of Jesus. It's the great exchange. He took all your sin, you get all his righteousness, not as a result of your works, so that no one boasts. God makes you right with him by faith alone. And people would go, so I don't have to earn it? No. I didn't do anything to deserve it? No. He just forgives it all. Yeah, okay. So if it glorifies God to forgive all my sin, I should sin more. Because if I sin more, he's got to forgive more. And if he forgives more, he gets more glory. Like if he gets glory for like benching 100, let's stack 300 on the bar. So if he just forgives like a decent person, that's no big deal. But if I'm like straight up nuts and he forgives me, he gets more glory. So let me go crazy for God's glory and let's go nuts. And Paul has to address that time and time again. In places like Romans 3 verse 8, he says, And why not say as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. He said, people, were doing this. Oh, so if I sin all I want, he forgives me all I want, then let me sin more so that he'll get more glory. And he says, why don't we say that as some slanderously report I do say? And then here's Paul's assessment of that crowd. Their condemnation is just. He's like, those people are condemned and they're rightly so. I don't teach like that. But Paul's gospel always leads to this question. I remember when I was a youth pastor, I led a, a little group of guys through the book of Galatians. And I remember sitting there next to this kid, and he always asked great questions. He was like, so we're forgiven, and we don't earn it. No. He said, all my sin, done. I'm forgiven, and, and, and heaven is assured to me. I said, yeah. He's like, then why don't I sin all I want? Why don't I just go crazy? And if you're reading Paul, you should naturally get to that question. Paul sort of leads you there. And what's interesting is he leads you there and he answers it in passages like Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, he says, now the law came in to increase the trespass. He's talking about in the Old Testament, at first there was just one law, don't eat the fruit, we broke that. And if you read the Old Testament, whole other laws came in. Don't kill each other, don't steal each other's wives, return a guy's goat. There's a lot of detail in there. And he says, when they added more law, there was more trespasses. Why? Because every time God kept adding laws, we broke all of them. So suddenly there's broken laws everywhere. So where the law increased, our trespass just kept going up. Read the Old Testament. It goes crazy. And he says, but where our sin increased, grace abounded even more. As crazy as you've been, as broken as what you've been done, God forgives all of it. You go, you don't know what I've done. No, but you don't know what he's done. 
If you think your sin can outstrip the grace of God, you don't know God very well. Jesus' grace abounds over everything that you've done. So where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So as sin reigned in death, so grace also might reign through righteousness, leading us to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. As bad as sin got, grace got better. As deep as sin went, grace went deeper. As wide as your sin goes, his grace goes wider. It it surrounds, absorbs, and redeems all of us by his grace through faith. So then Paul asks the question, what shall we say then? Do we continue to sin that grace may abound? Oh, salvation's free, so let me do all I want. And then Paul answers, we translate it, by no means. Uh, In Greek, it's meganoito, which is almost profanity. It's him saying like, hell no! He was so frustrated when people would say that. Why? Because he tells you, are we continuing to sin that grace may abound? By no means. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him into baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He says sin was leading to death. It was killing you. And so Jesus came to absorb it, extracted it from you, buried us in the grave, and then rose and gave you a new life. And that new life is so you can walk in newness of life. The idea is that Jesus gave you a new life so you can walk in newness of life. New life, new lifestyle, new identity, new activity. It would be like if you were dying, overdosed, addicted to drugs. And we grabbed you and took you to rehab and we got your body flushed out, cleaned out. We got you. And at the end of it, when you were clean, you said, hey guys, thank you so much for cleaning my whole body out because now it's ready to absorb a whole lot more drugs. Thank you. You'd be like, what? No. The point was not to get you healthy so you could trash your body again. The point is to get you healthy so you can live in a new healthy way. Do you see that? And that's the gospel. That's what Paul is saying. God changed you. And as a result, you should change. God gave you a new life, and that should lead to walking in newness of life. You didn't earn it. It's a result, not a cause. Do you see it? That works are the result of our faith, right? They're not an addition to it. So what does Paul believe about what God's doing with you and me? Let me summarize it in three statements, right? Number one, he believes we're justified by faith. We're brought into a personal relationship with God, By faith in Jesus Christ, the finished work, that he lived the perfect life you and I could not, died the death we deserved, buried in that grave, rose again, so whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's what he believes. Romans 5 says, therefore, we've been justified through faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we sing. Us and God are good. We're cool because of Jesus. Through whom we gained access by faith into the grace we now stand. The only way we got in that room was through him. We weren't cool enough to get into the VIP section. He let us in. That we came in on the tails of Jesus. He accomplished it. And when we trusted him, his grace got us in. And that grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Once we know his grace, we know heaven is ours. Jesus paid it all. It's done. It is finished. I'm his. I am justified by faith. But then he believes we're then indwelled by the Holy Spirit. God doesn't just positionally say you're justified. God constitutionally changes you. He said in Ephesians 1, having believed, 
We were marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. That God doesn't just declare you right, because you know when you prayed to receive Jesus, you were still a mess, right? But then God sent his spirit into you. He says it in Galatians. He says in Galatians 3, you're all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And then in Galatians 4, he says, because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. He says, God indwelled you with the Holy Spirit. He put his very spirit inside of you, right? That's one of the blessings God gave us, that Jesus said, it. if you make the tree good, the fruit will be good. And so God made the tree good. He put his very spirit inside you. And it changed you that now what you used to hate, you now love. And what you used to love, you now hate. God begins to change you. Philippians says it this way. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He's still working on you. So work out your salvation, right, in fear and trembling. Why? Because God is at work in us, both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. God is working in us. And so number three is we're then empowered to live a new life. We're justified by faith, indwelled by the Spirit, and then empowered to live a new life. That Spirit manifests His fruit of love, joy, and peace. That's why our life changes, because God changes us, that He makes us want to love Him. He makes us want to pursue peace with Him, makes us want to live by faith, makes us want to have self-control, that He changes who we are in the inside, so that I am justified, indwelled, empowered. So works are an addition to faith, are not an addition to faith. They're an expression of faith. You see that? I don't trust God and then do a bunch of stuff to make sure he stays happy with me. I trust God and that trust manifests itself in a new life. So my work is not an addition to my faith, the expression of it. Because I trust him, I want to read his word. Because I love him, I want to love who he loves, even you people. I want to go with him. (laughs) I want to go with him wherever he goes, right? Because he changed my heart. Do you see it? I'm with him. He says it this way in Galatians. And we'll wrap up, Paul. Galatians 5, he says, you're called to freedom, brothers. Only don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. He said, God set you free. So don't use that freedom to go back into the stuff that was messing you up. Use that freedom to love us. Love us because you're free free from insecurity, free from self-absorption, free from addiction. You're free to love us because, you know, heaven's secure and God loves you. Heaven smiles on you because of what Jesus did. So walk in that. And then Galatians 5, he says, for in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. That's out of nowhere. Why are we talking about circumcision? It's just part of the law. He's like, you don't add a bunch of religious rules. He says, none of that means anything. And then here's the kicker. He says, but faith working through love. He says, the only thing that matters is my faith works itself out as love. So Paul says, I'm saved by grace alone. That grace, the very spirit of God lands in me. And that faith begins to work itself out as love. It begins to change me. I begin to act different. I begin to care about God in ways I never cared about him before. I begin to care about people in ways I never cared about him before. I remember I have guys come to me, some hard dudes that have come to faith here, and they go, you know what? I cry more easily than I used to. I have some other ones say, you know what? God is making me trust him in some hard areas, and I'm resisting it, but I want to walk with him, right? That God is changing me from the inside out. That's what Paul says. Do you see it? Faith alone saves but the faith of saints is never alone. It begins to work itself out through love. 
Now let's get to James. James will say the same thing. James will say, faith works itself out through love. What counts to God is faith. But what kind of faith? The faith that works itself out through love. James will look at it and say, what I'm meant to see is a faith that works itself out. So a loveless faith is a useless faith, is what James will say. Paul was arguing that faith alone saves, but then he says, not so I'm free to sin all I want. That faith begins to express itself in love. James, did he believe we were saved by works? No. You see it all through the earlier part of James. He assumes the same gospel as Paul. He said in James chapter 1, verse 17, he said, every good and perfect gift is from above. The father of lights of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we were born again by the grace of God. He brought us forth by the word of truth. And then he says in James 2, 5, did not God choose the poor to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he promised to those who love him? This is James. And James says, hey, God brought us forth. That's how we were part of his family, not by our works, but by being born. And he said, didn't God choose to give us faith? Didn't he choose to give us a love for him, a faith that becomes love? And when it does, he says, we're called heirs of the kingdom. An heir is not someone who earns their place in the family. An heir is not someone who earns their inheritance. You know what an heir is, right? An heir is given stuff. So I read about a guy just this last week in Pennsylvania. His, his, his parents gifted him $3.8 billion with a B. He's 24 years old. He did not earn that. You just don't have the time at 24 to earn $3.8 billion. He didn't work for that. He didn't earn that. Why does he suddenly have $3.8 billion with a B dollars? Because he was born into a family that had that. He didn't earn it. It's an inheritance because he's an heir. Do you see that? That's the difference between earning and working for something and receiving as an inheritance, right? There's a difference between an heir and a laborer. Example, when I was in college, for me, I didn't have any money. So I had to work jobs. I waited tables. I mowed lawns. I worked in the parking garage. I painted houses. I was everywhere in my college town. You looked up at a house, I was painting it. You looked at a yard, I was mowing it. You got to your table, I was serving you some souffle. I was everywhere hustling to earn the money to get my education. My wife, Dawn, on the other hand, <laughs> had a benevolent grandmother that over the years just accrued wealth to fund her education. So Donna, while I was working, slaving, struggling, was laughing and <laughs> giggling with her friends and going to class and eating food. I remember at one time, there was two weeks where I lived off nothing but a big bag of Bisquick. I was that poor. Donna uh, was, you know, just out there, just joking around with her friends, having a blast. Because she was given money she didn't earn. Now, let me say, it's an illustration. My wife's a hardworking person and yeah, et cetera. Uh, that's for my own benefit, not y'all. Just let me do that. Okay. But a wage, when I got that paycheck, I earned that. A wage comes from effort. An inheritance comes from relationship. You see that? A wage comes from what you've done. An inheritance comes from whose you are. 
And James will say, we are heirs of the kingdom. Does James think you work to earn your salvation? No. He's already told you. God made you an heir by faith. Heirs don't work to get their inheritance. They receive it because of who their parents are. Your father gave you faith, and that brought you to life. So James believes we're saved by faith, right? We don't earn it. Same gospel as Paul. But then James has to ask the question, so do we sin all we want? And James will fight that same battle. He just does it in a different way. James will say, not faith works itself out through love. He comes around it the other way in verse 14. says, what good is it if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? And that's an important word, that. He's saying, I want to differentiate a kind of faith that works itself out through worth and a kind of faith that doesn't do anything. He says the faith that doesn't express itself in work, is that even legit? Is that even a real deal? And he assumes a negative answer. And then he goes on to illustrate it. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm and filled, which was a common biblical blessing, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? What he's saying is real faith works itself out through love. He just does it in illustration. If God has really changed your life, you care about other people. Faith becomes love. And in this idea, he says, if you got a brother or sister who's really hurting, you should be there, right? And that's when he goes on and says, so also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. And I think that has important. If faith doesn't possess works, if faith doesn't have this component in it where it becomes a work, that's not a real faith. Faith works itself out. The faith that, it's faith alone that saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. Do you see it? Now, does James think we're perfect? No. Praise the Lord in James 3. He says we all stumble in many ways. If he didn't say that, this book would be very stressful. But he says when we have faith, it should become love. And a worksless faith is a useless faith, according to James. Does that make sense? So here's a million-dollar question as we start bringing these guys together. How do you know you got the real stuff? How do you know you have real faith? How do you know you're really good? How do you know you and God are cool? James is going to give you four ways to know, four signs. Two that show you you aren't necessarily truly God's, and two that show you you are. So the two that don't, he gives you in verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons believe also and shudder. It's interesting, Jonathan Edwards, who's one of the greatest minds ever produced by America, preached an entire passage on this, uh, or entire sermon on this passage. The title of it was True Grace Distinguished from the Experience of Devils, which as is typical of Puritans in general, and Jonathan Edwards in particular, the first half of the sermon is absolutely terrifying. Uh, The second half, it picks up a bit. But the first part, what he's saying is, how do you differentiate the experience of genuine faith from the experience of devils. And he says, here's two things that don't necessarily show you you're saved in this passage. Number one is sound doctrine. You can believe the right theology and not be saved. And he gets it from here. You believe that God is one. That was the basis of theology in the Old Testament. It's called the Shema. The Lord our God, the Lord is one, is the foundation of all our theology. And he says, you believe that, you do well. The demons believe that. He says, do you have sound theology? demons have better theology than you. They didn't take a seminary class on Genesis and learn how to read it in the original Hebrew. 
They were there when he created the world. So if you just know, write facts about God, that's a good thing, but it doesn't essentially differentiate you from a demon. Second thing is not just sound theology, it is shuddering. It says not only do they believe the right things, they have a fear of God. They have a reverence of God. So if you have a fear of God, that doesn't necessarily mean you're saved either. So if you're someone that's like, hey, man, I'm a good guy. I don't cuss in church, right? When I'm around a pastor, I tell people, shh, shh don't talk to the pastors here, right? I do that kind of stuff. Uh, I pray when I'm scared, more during Halloween, right? Uh, I, I, I attend services at specific holy days. And, and you're what Flannery O'Connor called the South, Christ haunted. I don't necessarily love him, but I'm a little bit afraid of him. He says, demons do that. Demons are afraid of him. Demons have right theology and they have a respect for God's power because they know what he's capable of more than you or I. So if you just have a fear of God's power, that doesn't necessarily mean you're one of God's kids. Even demons have that. So if you have good theology and a fear of God, those are good things, but they don't necessarily differentiate you from demons, right? There's the stressful part. Um, so how do I know I got the right stuff? Well, James says it's faith that manifests itself as care for people. That's what he said earlier. It's faith in God that becomes care for people who are in need around me. And then he says it's love for God, that it creates a sincere love for God. And this is where Paul and James converge. So we're bringing them together. Both of them want to start talking about faith expressing itself as love for God. And in doing so, both Paul and James, if you notice, go to the same illustration. They both go to Abraham, Father Abraham, who had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them. So are you. So let's praise the Lord. A little church humor. It makes sense for Paul and James to go to Father Abraham. Why? Because they're both Jewish men. And Abraham was the OJ, the original Jew. And so if you're trying to make an argument about how to be right with God and you can prove it was good enough for the father of our faith, then it's good enough for us. So it makes sense that they go back to Abraham. Does that make sense? Everybody with me so far, class? I know this is a tougher one, not as many cute stories, but here we are, right? We're learning some good things. They're going to point to Abraham. If I can prove it was good enough for Abraham, then it's good enough for you and I, okay? And so James will grab two events in Abraham's life. The first one was from Genesis 15. Genesis 15, Abraham's having a bit of a rough go, is a little depressed, comes to God, was like, I'm gonna die, I don't have any kids, life's kind of lame, and God comes to him and tells him, I promise you, you're gonna have children. And through your child, the whole world will be blessed. Genesis 15, 6. Paul will call it the gospel because the seed of Abraham is Jesus. God was telling Abraham, through your child, I'm going to bless the whole world. And Genesis 15, 6 says, and Abraham believed God. In that moment, even though he was struggling, and even though God didn't give him all the information, he said, I believe you. I trust you. And Genesis 15, 6 says, Abraham believed God, and his faith was reckoned as righteousness. When Abraham there on, that knee, on his knees said, I trust you, God. I trust you. God said, then you and I are right. You're righteous. We're cool because you trust me. I work salvation, not you. And if you trust me, you're good. And his faith 
reckoned him as righteous. You and I are cool. And then James quotes Genesis 22, which is 30 years later in Abraham's life. And in Genesis 22, after three decades of walking with God, Genesis 22 says, and God tested Abraham. What is God testing? His faith. What is God trying to see? Is it a faith that expresses itself in love or not? And so God challenges him to offer up his son Isaac as a sacrifice. Now, there's a whole lot in that we need to discuss. Is God advocating child sacrifice? No. Child sacrifice was very common in that area in that day. If you read the whole story, God specifically tells him not to sacrifice his son. That's an important point some people miss. He told him not to at the end to show him no one sacrifices their child to make themselves okay with me. I will sacrifice my child to make you okay with me. I'm the only one who does that. Salvation is from the Lord, Jesus Christ, not from your kid. But God tests Abraham. Will you trust me with your most pre- prized possessions, even your son? And Abraham was willing to do that. And when Abraham was willing to do that, what does James say? Was not Abraham our father justified by work when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, faith was active along with his work. Don't miss that. Faith was the animating power of his work. Faith was what was active. I trust you, God, and that trust is manifesting itself in my decisions. And faith was completed by his work. It was shown to be mature. It was brought to its mature place. That faith had been growing and developing over three decades. And here you see a maturity and completion of it by this expression of work. And the scripture was fulfilled. What was spoken three decades before, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. How do you know you have the real disease? We see the symptoms. How do you know Abraham had real faith? He was God's friend. He trusted God. He loved God. Faith became love. It's interesting. How do you ultimately know? Some of you are still back on the demon thing, I can tell. (laughs) How do you know you're different than a demon? A demon can have good theology and fear. They can know all the right things. They know that human beings are justified by grace alone through faith. They know that. What's different between a demon and a believer is they don't love it. They don't love him. How do you know you're different? How do you know you're saved? You love the Savior. That's how. How do you know you're a Christian? You love Christ. Like, I belong to that man. It's not what I do. It's I trust him. I'm with him. I'm going where he goes. I love him. They know the truth but hate it. We know the truth and we love him. Do you see it? And Abraham was called a friend of God. I trust you, God. I'm your friend. I'm with you. And it proved what was there three decades before. The faith that made him right is displaying itself three decades later. Now, James passes over a lot of places where Abraham really messes up. But that faith is working and you see it working. Do you see it? So justification in Paul and James. We're almost there, class. Paul will say we are justified by faith and not by works. And when Paul says that, he means God declares us to be right by the finished work of Jesus. And James agrees. James says we were brought forth by the word of truth and heirs of the kingdom promised to those who love him. Right? And then James will say, we are justified by works, meaning our conversion is shown to be legitimate because our work displays our faith. Paul will agree. Paul will say, all that matters is faith working itself out through love. New identity produces new activity. Change in my being 
produces change in doing. It is faith alone that saves, but the faith alone that never, uh, the faith that saves is never alone. So what's happening here? Let me illustrate it this way. I remember when I was in high school, I lived in Texas, and uh, I was in a conversation with someone once about what's the best beef jerky on the planet. And, uh, excuse me, turkey jerky, uh, let's be specific. And some of you have never been in a conversation like that, and it's because you're not in, from Texas. But uh, I was telling him, I know where it is. It's uh, at the Hilji Smokehouse. It's the best turkey jerky. People drive for miles to go there because these people have figured out how to make a turkey taste maximum delicious that you can take anywhere. And I remember for the first time, this girl pushed back on me. She was like, no. What do you mean no? She was like, no, I know where the best turkey jerky is. It's in Prosex. And I was like, excuse me? I was like, do you understand how dumb you sound? Like, no, I'm telling you the best turkey jerky is in Hilji. And she said, no, it's at Prosex. And I'm like, I understand your ignorance. You just don't know. But the fact that you keep saying it, you're displaying ignorance. I'm embarrassed for you. And we just kept fighting about it. And there was no peace. Until one day we were on a trip together to go visit her dad. And she said, hey, we're going to pass by Prosex. And I'm going to show you it's the best turkey jerky. And I was like, well, that's interesting. Because we're driving along. We're going to go through Hilji. I'm about to show you what's the best turkey jerky. And as we were both driving, I'm like, get ready to repent, sister. And she was like, I'm going to show you. And I'm like, all right. And so we pull up. And I remember we turned the corner. And we were both like, ah! Because we pointed. And it was Prosex Hilji's Smokehouse. Prosek was the guy, Hilji's the town, and we looked at each other and we're like hours of fighting, and it's the same jerky. <laughs> and that's what's happening with Paul and James. We're talking about the same jerky. That how are you made right with God? You don't do a thing. Jesus paid it all. He did it, and we celebrate him. But faith alone saves, but that faith that saves is never alone. It begins to change us. It begins to work on us. It begins to make us something new. You see it? Let me illustrate it this way, and then I think we will have beaten this horse sufficiently dead. All right? I call this the ABCs of salvation. Okay? This is a lot of seminary, very expensive, distilled down into three little letters. Okay? Here we go. A, call different things because a lot of different things are happening. Conversion, justification, adoption, redemption. This is when you hear the gospel that Jesus forgives and you believe it. God changes you, makes you right, declares you to be right because of the finished work of Jesus, the great exchange. He takes all my sin, I take all his righteousness, and me and God are okay, honored forever. It's called justification. We'll call it A, right? B is then God goes to work on me. And he starts to work in my heart and change me. The Bible, we theologically call that sanctification, where this is the changing of my position before God. Positionally, I'm made right. This is the process of making me right, that I'm changing the way I live. I'm changing the way I talk. I'm changing what I do. I'm becoming a different person. This is what people expect to see when you say, I put my faith in Jesus, and they say, we'll see. They want to see God changing your life, that he who began a good work on you will complete it. And then C, we call glorification. That if this is saving me from the penalty of sin, 
I'm no longer its slave and will not face its judgment. This is freeing me from the power of sin. What used to control me doesn't control me anymore. This is freedom from the very presence of sin, that this is heaven. I go to see Jesus when I die. So we hope in the glory of God. Justification, sanctification, glorification. A, B, and C. The way the Bible preaches it is this. If A, if you've put your faith in Jesus, then B, we should at least see life change. Then C, we will see you in heaven. Do you see that? If A, then B, then C. Now, when you read your Bible, there's a lot of if A, then C verses. And we love these, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes him will not perish, but have everlasting life. We love those verses. If A, then C. And then there's some if A, then B. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Work out your salvation because he's working in you. We like these. And then there's some if B then C verses and these terrify you to death. And these are the ones I get emails about, right? <laughs> if we remain steadfast, we will receive the reward. If, what? Why is the if? And we freak out and you go, no, it makes sense. If A, then B. And B, then C, right? Now, if we say this, A plus B equals C, we have a name for that in theological circles. We call this heresy, right? <laughs> because you're saying the work of Jesus was not sufficient. I have to add to it to be okay. No, you don't. Jesus does not need your help. He doesn't need you to give him a boost. You don't make yourself right to combine your work to equal heaven. This is not how it works. But if the grace of God has touched your life, then we'll see a life change. Right? We'll see it. And then we'll see you in forever. We will. You just see it work out. That's the ABCs. Do you see it? Last story. And sorry we went long, but like I said, this is a weird one. I remember the first time my wife and I ever bought a house. Uh, it had been abandoned, essentially. The guy had raised many pets. I mean, it was like, uh, I, I think they just, I think the pets lived in the house, just rabbits and dogs. And we received like rabbit quarterly for years after that, which is a newspaper I didn't know existed, but it does. And uh, those rabbits roamed free all through the house, apparently, but they didn't eat in the yard because the yard had no grass at all. But it had weeds, millions of weeds. And I don't mean like little weeds, like, is that a weed? I mean, they were taller than my head, robust, angry weeds. Question, how do the neighbors know a new resident moved in? Because I took a weed eater and I attacked those weeds. And I felt like a little man in a big coleslaw because it was just shooting water out of these weeds. Like, weeds flying everywhere. And we began to rip out weeds and plant grass and till up the ground and began to change things so that about a month or two months later, you saw less weeds and more grass. Now, after a couple months, was there a lot of grass? No, just a little bit. You're like, I see some grass. I see some grass. Were there still weeds? Yeah, quite a few. So many that if you were new to the neighborhood and driving by a house, you'd say, well, clearly nobody lives there. Look what a mess that yard is. And you'd be wrong because you hadn't seen the progress over time. 
less weeds, more grass, because there's a new resident and he's working on me. That's how the gospel works. That's what Paul is saying, and that's what James is saying. How do you know God's working on you? He moves into your life, ready or not. He comes slamming in. And some of you, you were five, and someone told you about Jesus and you believed. Some of you, it was five minutes ago in this sermon. You were like, Jesus paid it all. I need that because I can't fix me. I'm in too deep a hole. I'm too far back in the race. I will never catch up. But if Jesus can live the perfect life for me, you got to do it. We are saved by grace alone. And he says the Spirit of God takes up residence in you. You have a new resident in that body of yours, the Spirit of the living God. And when he gets in you, he's going to start ripping out weeds. And he's going to start planting grass. He's going to start pulling out selfishness. He's going to start pulling out lack of discipline. He's going to start pulling out your bitterness. He's going to start ripping some of it up. He's going to start planting patience and start planting grace and start planting peace. Does it all happen at once? No. And there may be given moments where you bark at us and less mature believers may say, well, clearly he's not saved because if he was saved, he wouldn't act that way because if A equals B and then B equals C. And they do that sort of thing. And you say, you be careful, son. Because you haven't seen the progress over time. God is working on my child. He's working on all of us. There are no perfect people in here. And yet God who began a work is faithful to complete it. And he's working on us. And he's making us better. He's making us more like him. And then at the end, we will be free from the very presence of sin. And we are his forever. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's why we sing. We rejoice. He has paid it all. So all to him I know. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast.